Well, the truth is, I'm a little nervous because I'm going to leave the country, but I have to do it because I have no choice. Cesar Sanchez is about to undertake a perilous journey. He's one of thousands of Hondurans who attempt to flee their country every year in search of a better life. The migrant caravan is growing. The group fleeing violence and poverty in Central America has pushed through Mexico's southern border. Many try to make their way to the United States. And often, we hear news reports about them fleeing violence and poverty. But increasingly, there's another reality. Hurricane Ada slammed into Central America in November. Ada and Iota were two of the strongest storms of 2020. Fueled partly by natural cycles, but magnified by human-caused climate change. Droughts, floods, and hurricanes are affecting their jobs and creating food insecurity. Thousands of migrants fleeing growing climate emergency. Last year, nearly half of the population in Honduras was affected by two powerful storms. But the concept of climate refugee is not legally recognized by international law. So what's left for Cesar and other migrants who are leaving their homes? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. My name is Monica Villamizar. I'm a conflict reporter. Monica just wrapped production on a documentary for Al Jazeera's Fault Lines about Honduras and how climate change is affecting lives in unprecedented ways. So you have been covering this region for years and you have seen so many stories of people fleeing to the U.S. from Central and South America year after year. But when you went to Honduras this time in the midst of the pandemic, you weren't looking for people migrating due only to violence, which is what we so often see. How did you decide to explore migration from a climate perspective? As you say correctly, I had been following the migrant route, specifically from Central America to the U.S. I did it about seven times in two years, on foot, on bus, being smuggled with coyotes on top of trains. I mean, really kind of experienced it firsthand. And I was very familiar with the immigration beat. Producer Mark Shiala and Neil Brandenvold contacted me saying, you know, there really is an angle with climate change and what's going on with migration. I have colleagues who had been talking to me about climate refugees and obviously had been reading a lot more about it, but I thought it was mostly happening, for instance, in Bangladesh or places that are either going to disappear completely because of rising floodwaters. You know, to learn that Honduras was really suffering climate change and a lot of these people were fleeing climate change and not violence, not corruption or like a failing state, because it is a failing state where the president has been accused of drug trafficking and his brother is convicted and in a U.S. prison, for instance, for drug trafficking. But I thought it was just really interesting to follow the story from that angle. And what we found was very surprising. You met so many fascinating people. Can you tell me about your main subject in the story? Yes, we met this guy, Cesar, who was very well-spoken, very sweet, almost like naive in a way. We met him in a bus station where a lot of migrants are starting like a very long trek up north. This starts by bus. Sometimes they have to do bits on foot. Then some get coyotes, the ones who can afford them. And... We're fascinated by his story because 
He had been walking for three days without eating. I have no home. I have no family. I don't have a place to work. He was very upset because he had been fired because the cows that he was taking care of died. And he wasn't paid by his boss because he was blamed on this. And then he was explaining to us that basically the drought meant that he couldn't do anything to save those animals. There was no water, you know, sometimes no water for people, much less for the cows. So two of them ended up dying. Before, the rivers didn't dry out as they do now. We're in a climate that I really don't know anymore. The situation is worse now. So normally with migrants, there's kind of a final push factor. You know, the last straw that says, I need to leave. And leaving is a very tough decision and it's kind of by something extreme. And for this guy, we started looking into it and it really was climate change. But following a person on a long and dangerous journey, like the one Cesar was on, with cameras, was difficult in itself. So Monica and her team had to adapt. We figured that because we were attracting so much attention to him and his plight, and it was kind of more disruptive, we finally decided that we were going to give him a phone and have him document, like, diary style. And the things he would show us, and he found these caves where he was sleeping. I'm on the border now. We're at the crossroad, at the Honduran border with Guatemala. Guatemala. And he would document that and show us, look, I had to climb a palm tree and grab a coconut. Just really amazing, uh, very interesting stuff. In contrast to Cesar's story, someone who decided that it was time to leave and was prepared to do that, you also met a woman who's recently started thinking about the idea of starting a new life somewhere else. What made Ingrid Garcia flirt with that possibility? So she was first affected by the double hurricanes that smacked Honduras back to back, Eta and Iota. Her house floods, and then she becomes an IDP, sort of an internally displaced person, if you will. And this in Honduras has been very tragic because the neighborhoods and the cities are so divided up by gangs that if you are suddenly finding yourself living somewhere else and another gang controls that area, you are targeted and you can be killed. And she fears almost daily for her life, for her son's life, but also because she had to move and leave her house, she was affected by COVID and had her partner die of COVID. I couldn't believe it. I was in shock and panic because I lived with her for over 18 years. So she is in a very difficult place right now. Her home was destroyed. She owes a lot of money from the mortgage. She doesn't have a place to live. And where she's at now, she's going to be preyed upon by these gangs. At one point, In the documentary, you asked Ingrid about her son, who's a teenager, the age when gangs start recruiting kids to join them, showing that these things really are linked. What did she tell you? Exactly. She said she's very worried as a mother, a single mother now, because just to give you guys context about it, the gangs will prey upon a teen and they won't let go. And it's not something voluntary. Sometimes it can be forced, but Sometimes this doesn't matter and they don't have a choice. They can kill him or they can confuse him with someone who they're after if he goes into another community. For instance, a lot of these young men, if they live in a gang-controlled area, 
they can't even go to work and back because sometimes they're going to be targeted and killed. So it's a really tricky situation for young people in Honduras. One of the things that caught our attention in your reporting is that you found a woman who was a member of MS-13, an international criminal gang, and she too is affected by climate change. Can you explain how? Yeah, so the way big cities like San Pedro Sula or like Tegucigalpa in Honduras work is that a gang or two gangs divide up the neighborhoods to have a firm grip on what people do, what they can't do, when they can go out. They control every aspect of life. The gangs, to survive, some deal drugs and some extort businesses. They have a sort of quota that they collect from businesses. So this woman we met was mid-level member of a gang, MS-13. And when the floods hit Honduras back to back and flooded entire neighborhoods and businesses closed down, she was telling us their safe house was flooded too. Everything changed for us with the hurricane. Many losses for the gang. And they had to go somewhere else. When they go somewhere else, they're immediately targeted by the rival gang. So they become themselves very vulnerable. But also they stop making money for the sort of general command of their gang because the businesses they were extorting are all broke. Monica, we know that climate change is the defining crisis of our time. And those aren't my words. Those are the words of the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, who has said that disaster displacement is one of its most devastating consequences. Personally, just as you mentioned earlier, when I hear the term climate refugee, I think Bangladesh and the devastating floods, or I think the South Pacific island nation of Kiribati, which is sinking. I don't immediately think of residents of South, Central, or North America. Can you help us understand who a climate refugee might be? That's a great question. And it's a very complex one. I think even for experts and people who are immigration lawyers, etc. These people say, in a nutshell, right now, you can't claim asylum in the U.S. as a climate migrant. One of the people working to shift the boundaries on who can claim the status of climate refugee is Kaylee Ober, a senior advocate and program manager of the Climate Displacement Program at Refugees International. She told Monica that the current guidelines are narrow. In order to be designated with refugee status, you have to qualify through a very specific checklist of conditions. Um, Nowhere within that refugee convention does it talk about climate change or environmental change. And so those who really are moving principally because of climate change fall through the cracks. They often aren't able to access this refugee status. The reason is that it's very complicated to isolate why you left and link it specifically to climate change. For instance, you can be victim of a flood, but was the flood caused by climate change or was it just your average rainy seasonal flood, right? So I think events that scientists analyze and say this is outside what normal climate patterns and it's really sort of an outlier in a significant way, like a very strong hurricane hitting a a place and then another very strong one hitting immediately. And that's exactly what happened in Honduras. Then these things can be considered climate change related events. And then it's very hard to say that citizens from the entire country are fleeing because of climate change. Mm -hmm. So what's really important is that wealthy nations understand that 
with time, we're going to have thousands and not millions of people moving to other places because of climate change. So I think people need to study and understand what this entails and how policy can catch up with this. In February of this year, U.S. President Joe Biden issued an executive order calling for his administration to examine climate-related displacement and migration. And a task force was created, and they submitted a report in July saying that, among many things, there needs to be more support to reduce the risk of disaster, and that the U.S. Congress needs to adopt protections for migrants who are forced to move and unable to return back to their home countries due to climate change disasters. So keeping that in mind, if these recommendations were implemented, what difference would that make in the lives of the people that you talk to and people like them? It can be an answer as simple as if other countries help with climate change in the agriculture sector, for instance. If you have some kind of development where you have irrigation systems in areas that are going to experience severe droughts and that are always going to experience them periodically more than ever, people can maybe save their crops, they can maybe keep on with their productions and they will never be forced to leave. It's kind of mitigation strategies. It's development and investment in countries so that people don't get to the point where they have to leave because a lot of people don't want to leave their countries. Another important element is responsibility or shared responsibility. Uh, Some people say, well, if the United States keeps on polluting and this is affecting the climate with carbon emissions, you know, shouldn't they also try to solve, like work on this side to pollute less so that it doesn't affect people in other places and then forces them to flee their homes and try to migrate to America? You were up close and personal with so many of these stark instances of climate change, of natural disaster. You were walking around people's destroyed homes, the places where they used to have all their memories and their good times. What was that like for you? I mean, on a personal level, it it affects you. Of course it does. And I think you feel a little bit, a tiny bit of the person's pain and realize what it means to be attached to the land, to agriculture, because you're you know, planting things that you're using to feed your family or to feed towns and cities. And I think we tend to think of material things, but your home is filled with emotional things as well, or memories of your childhood, of this or that. And sometimes people don't suffer because they've lost the material things. I think it's kind of a loss of like your whole life's gone in one day and it creates a void and it's really scary. When we interviewed people who were explaining to us what was happening and they're very rational at the beginning, they all of a sudden, you know, stopped and started crying because the emotional stress and trauma is always there. Yeah. So it's it's hard. It's hard to report on this, but we think ultimately it's a story that must be told and people can see what's going on and policy can be drafted. I mean, you think of hopefully the greater good that would come out of it, but it is very hard. What do you want people to take away from this documentary? I would love for people to take away the fact that climate change is having a real impact on people and is causing migration. We asked people 
that we interviewed, do you consider yourself a climate change refugee? Mm. And they said, yes. Mm -hmm. We said, would you try to claim asylum saying that? Would you explain that to the people who are going to listen to your version in the credible fear interview if you get as far as a border point of entry and stuff? That's sort of the usual process. They were like, yes, we're definitely going to say that. The terrible thing is that doesn't exist as a category. You can't come to the United States and seek asylum because you were affected by climate change yet. Mm -hmm. So the system is perverse because it's asking people to either lie or use another story and say, well, I have to prove that I was a victim of extortion and here are the threats, for instance, or I was victim of domestic violence or gangs. Proving that is increasingly hard, by the way, because thousands of people have to prove it every day and some get rejected and some don't. But it's terrible that the system is such that it hasn't really caught up with that reality. But once you watch this documentary, you'll understand specifically why it's happening, how it's happening, the manifestations and why it matters. And that's The Take. If you want to hear more of Cesar's story and meet the other people Monica talked to, check out the Fault Lines documentary Exit Honduras, A Climate in Crisis, which airs on October 27th. You can watch live or later on YouTube. We'll post a link on our social media accounts at AJ The Take. And before we go, a heads up that I'm handing over the microphone to my Al Jazeera colleague, Patricia Sabka, while I'm off for the next few episodes. She's got some good things in store, so stay tuned. Today's episode was produced by Ney Alvarez, with Ruby Zaman, Nagin Oliai, Dina Kispe, Priyanka Tilve, Alexandra Locke, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Alex Roldan was the sound designer. Steve Lack mixed this episode. Aya Elmilek is our engagement producer. Tom Fenton is our story editor, and Stacey Samuel is The Take's executive producer. We'll be back. <laughs>